0: Well, coming up in this episode, have you ever dreamed about just quitting your job, jumping on your bike, and heading off to Alaska? Well, if you have, this is going to be a great episode for you because our guest, Aaron Moore, that's exactly what he did. But going to Alaska wasn't good enough. He actually did it on a 1946 Harley Davidson knucklehead. So stick around and find out more about this fantastic adventure. Gentlemen, may I direct your attention to something quite extraordinary, quite incredible, quite unlike anything you may have experienced in your life?
1: Shut up and sit down. Welcome to Random Thoughts from the Road on the Ozark Rides Digital Network. Conversations about motorcycles, any random thoughts that pop into our head, and of course, one of the
0: best places to ride in America the Ozark Mountains of Missouri and Arkansas. And now, here's your host from OzarkRides.com Craig Allen and Randy Lewis. I don't know what's wearing out faster, me or my bike. What I do know is that if your bike needs maintenance, then you need to go to Heartland Honda in Springdale, the first level five Honda powerhouse dealer in Arkansas. Their red level technicians can keep you rolling. Plus, Heartland Honda has a huge selection of Honda motorcycles, ATVs, and side by sides all with excellent financing options. So give them a call at 479-751-7022 or find them online at heartlandhonda.com. Heartland Honda, work hard, play hard. I want to tell you about a legal team whose members are both experienced motorcycle riders and aggressive lawyers, Law Tigers. Now, Law Tigers is not a law firm or a lawyer referral service. They're a national association of motorcycle accident injury lawyers who are ready to assist you with your accident claims. Each Law Tiger has their own law firm, and they have a great website that can help you with a lot of your questions. So go to LawTigers.com and put their number in your phone, 888-863-7216. There's someone there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week to help you with any of your questions. Law Tigers Motorcycle Lawyers helping riders find answers. Well, welcome back to another episode of Random Thoughts from the Road. With me, as always, is Randy Lewis from Bike Works in Urbana, Missouri, and of course, we have a special guest, and his name is Aaron Moore. Aaron is a, a unique individual in that he collects vintage Harleys, well, any kind of motorcycles and hot rods and they are all working and welcome to the podcast Aaron. Thanks Greg. Well why don't you just jump right into it tell us a little bit about your background so people that are not uh, aware of who you are and how you've come to the point in your life where you wanted to just build bikes and ride them.
1: Yeah like a lot of folks that ride motorcycles I got into it early as a kid. Uh, I grew up in rural southern Missouri and uh, rode bikes uh, around the farms. My buddies all had bikes, uh, you know, we used it for transportation between each other's farms and things. So I was always into bikes, uh, you know, from way back when. Uh, also growing up on a farm, I was around a lot of machinery, did a lot of mechanic work on tractors and combines and balers and that sort of thing. And through high school was kind of a, a motorhead, like a lot of us playing with cars and bikes. Uh, got into college, continued to do that stuff as a hobby. Then, later, I worked as a mechanic uh, to help pay my way through school, and then just always kept at it as a hobby, but as a pretty serious hobby. And I started doing uh, restoration on antique cars, but really started to zero in on motorcycles, probably in my twenties. Uh, I had a few guys who were kind of a big influence and kind of mentors in that respect. So I started, uh, yeah, doing the restoration work. and then, I don't know, there was a point where I took a trip to Alaska. I had a buddy who was stationed at Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage, and he was a high school buddy, and we had a summer to kill, and another buddy and I loaded up. I had a big jacked-up Bronco, full-size Bronco, and we loaded it up with gear and uh, spent the summer in the Yukon just camping and hiking and mountain climbing and just goofing off mostly. And while I was up there, I just kind of fell in love with that part of the country for a lot of different reasons. I mean, it's extremely scenic. You know, so those parts of it are great, but also the people that are up there, that culture, that frontier mentality—that it was kind of been lost on the rest of us down here—you still find that up there, and that really appealed to me. So, I don't know. When I was up there, I had the thought in my head that it would be fun to take that trip on an antique motorcycle at some point. So, fast forward—I was uh, in my 30s, I guess, uh, still full with bikes, and taken some. Well, we'd ridden to Sturgis and a few things, but not any extreme long-distance trips you know, on a bike, much less an antique bike. But, so in my mid-30s, I found myself—I'd uh, gone to law school, and I was an attorney. I was working for Dish Network, satellite television company, and uh, had been with them about six years. And just really wasn't happy with the job itself, had uh, thought about doing something different. Still hadn't been married, no kids, no mortgage, no debt. And that idea of riding to Alaska was still pretty appealing to me. So I just started planning. And uh, initially, I built a 1948 Panhead that I was going to take. And I spent quite a bit of time getting that bike ready. And then time kind of got away from it. The window for traveling up there is relatively small. But also, as I rode that 48 Panhead, I realized I didn't, I didn't really care for that bike too much for a variety of reasons. One of which, those early Panheads were plagued with low oil pressure problems and... I really fought that and a few other mechanical issues, just design issues that I didn't like about the Panhead. So I, I ended up selling the Panhead and backed up to a Knucklehead. I dug around and found a 46 Knucklehead that was out in Tulsa. It wasn't a basket. It was a riding bike, but it really wasn't very original. It had a lot of good components. But anyway, I ended up snagging that bike and uh, blew it apart and did a complete restoration on it. I postponed that trip another year, so I continued to work that following summer is when I finally uh, pulled the plug, quit work, and uh, in planning, you know, getting to Alaska is really not that difficult in terms of logistics. There's, uh, it's a long way up there, no doubt, but there's plenty of uh, fuel, restaurants, uh, hotels. I mean, it's not, you're never very far from anything you'd need to, you know, fix something or survive or whatever. It's just not that big of a deal.
0: Well, I've got, I've, I'm curious. Going to Alaska on a motorcycle is not uncommon as far as people wanting to do it and in fact doing it. Yeah. But what in your mind triggered that made you say, yeah, okay, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it on a bike that is old enough to be my grandfather.
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's certainly that perspective that most people have of antique motorcycles that they're because they're old, they're also unreliable and can't be ridden long distances that notion is just pure nonsense. It's, it's not accurate at all.
2: Yeah. We're, we're a far cry away from the fifties and sixties when stuff wasn't as abundant, the knowledge wasn't as great. I mean, there's so much stuff that you could do to a vintage bike now and shit, it's probably as reliable as a twin cam.
1: Yeah. And you know, the truth is uh, also, I think one thing that's contributed to that is the fact that, you know, at some point people kind of quit doing maintenance on all vehicles you know, you might see folks that change their oil and things occasionally these days, but you know, not like they used to. And you know, the owner's manual on this bike is a hundred and some odd pages long and (laughs) it's not hard to read. The maintenance is not hard to do. Anybody can learn to do it, but the trick is you've got to do it. I've ridden plenty of shovel heads a long way, but they, you know, they over time developed a reputation as being unreliable. Well, I'm not so sure it's design issues, but rather just a lack of maintenance. Yeah, it's the end user of usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these old bikes, this knucklehead I've got, uh, today I've got 76,000 miles on it. 2,500 of those miles are on gravel roads. It's still a six-volt system. It's still uh, got the old linker carburetor. I mean, the bike looks exactly the same as it did when it came out from the factory. And out of all those miles, I have never once been stranded due to a breakdown. This bike's never been towed anywhere because it broke down. It's always, always, always gotten me home. And I'm not saying I haven't broken down, but I've always had what I needed in the way of tools and parts and knowledge to get the thing going again. And the other great advantage to these bikes is, you know, you hear this discussed quite a bit about antiques, but, you know, the mechanical, you know, parameters, which in which this bike will continue to run when most bikes would quit is very different, you know, from a modern bike. This bike can really be out of whack, but it it'll still run and it still get you home. <laughs> so that's a huge advantage. You know, if you got an electrical problem on a on your twin cam, you got a problem most likely, it'll leave you stranded. Mine's not like that. I can make adjustments and get to the house.
2: Right. And you're you're way more of an expert than I'll probably ever be on vintage motorcycles and stuff, but from my perspective of it is when they were built they weren't built with the idea that it has to be comfortable. It has to have ABS. It has to have infotainment centers. It has to have all this stuff. It was essentially just bare bones. This is what it has to have to work. These parts work continuously. They work well. Parts are abundant, obviously, at the time. So it wasn't like it is today where you have to have all the extras and all
0: the creature comforts. It was pretty much just this is what it is. Well, this, not only that. This prickle work. The way things are built today. They're built with a design in mind that you need to take it to a shop. Yeah. yeah. You know, but back then.
2: That's smart business and smart
0: marketing. It is. (laughs) But back then it was designed more to let the end user be able to maintain his bike. Oh, yeah. Simplicity.
2: Yeah, I would would definitely have to agree with that. You know, they were just, like you said, they're just completely different. You know, back then people, you went through some hard times, you know, history wise through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. There was hard times. There wasn't always, you know, a ton of shops everywhere and doing everything. I mean, shops essentially, they sold bikes. That's pretty much what they did back then. They weren't necessarily big time mechanic shops that continuously overhauled and reworked stuff. It was literally a dealership. You sold it. They put tires, tubes, oil changes, little crap like that. And for the most part, the people that were buying those motorcycles were buying them and doing their own modifications, their own little changes, maintaining them all themselves. Because let's be honest, we didn't have the infrastructure like we do now. Roads were not very good. Places they rode these bikes weren't very good. So you had to know what was going on with your bike. And that's probably the reason why you get a 130-page owner manual with it, as opposed to how to install your helmet and how to put it on and safe riding tips that you get in today's owner's manuals.
1: Well. You know, those conditions also required the bikes to be a lot, I'm not saying they're tougher than they are today necessarily, but in terms of their, you know, the roads weren't that great. There were a lot of gravel roads. You know, what I did with this bike in 1940 wasn't, you know, that wouldn't have raised an eyebrows, mm-hmm. but back then the roads were rough. You know, the castings, just the, the design of the bike had to be such that uh, they could withstand a lot more than people give them credit for. Oh yeah. And don't forget you know, I heard your other podcast you did on the World War II. Well, the military bikes. You've Got to remember what those bikes went through during the war. I mean, they were tough as nails.
2: Shit, yeah, um, they were. Yeah. I don't think they ever really saw a, a road, so to speak. Yeah. D- during use, I mean, it was it was fields, it was mud pits, it was just tracks, game tracks, game trails, crap like that. It wasn't like. You know, you jump on Highway 65 here in Missouri and just start cruising. I mean, it just just wasn't like that. Yeah. So it it always pisses me off when people talk about vintage motorcycles and, oh, you always have to work on them. You always have to maintain them. They're always this. They're leaking oil. They're breaking down. Well, no, it's because you don't know shit about them is what it is. You don't know how to properly, you know, do anything with them. You're not savvy or mindful enough to think, all right, this is, you know, a 50, 60 year old motorcycle.
1: But that perception about bikes, this old stuff being unreliable, you know, that's why now, it it doesn't matter whether it's an antique bike or Model A or whatever. If you see one of those running down that road, people stop and go, what in the world? And when you combine that with, you know, being in the Yukon or Alaska or somewhere, then it really raises eyebrows because people are like, what, how in the world did you get here on that old thing? Well, they're plenty capable. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not really that big of a deal.
2: Right. You may not be pulling 70, 80 miles an hour while you do that, but yeah, they'll no. definitely get that. I mean, by its innate nature, it was designed to run. It was designed yeah. to operate.
0: So did you make any modifications to the bike whatsoever for the, now you went to Alaska twice. Uh,
1: did, yeah, you, so, did you do anything? Well, a couple of things regarding those travels up north. Yeah, I did. Uh, Mechanically, I changed the, uh, the only thing I did really, that's not stock on this bike and you can't see it is I replaced the clutch and the primary chain with a belt so that uh, I've got a diaphragm clutch system and a belt drive, but that's all hidden behind the primary covers. So you don't see any of that. I'd had some experience with those before and had really good luck with them. The clutch is just much smoother. You set it and you're done. And then the the belt drive just it's smooth and nice and just kind of maintenance free. And I didn't want to have to fool with that on the road. Um, but I left mine six volt. I didn't do, I don't do a whole lot of riding at night. So I know one of the big advantages of switching is having kind of a brighter light. Yeah. You can get a brighter headlight, but I don't do much of that. And frankly, you know, we always joke about Well, was, <laughs> I got guys on modern bikes. that We were out in Sturgis one year, rode back to a place we had rented. And guys were like, did you not see all those deer? Cause we rode pretty quickly. And we're like, no, we didn't see him and we don't want to see them. We don't either. You're going to hit a deer. Or you're not. And I don't want the anxiety of seeing them and not hitting them. I'd rather just go. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I'll
2: see what I have to see it. Well, shit. Your little six volt system in that bulb is probably a little bit brighter than the old kerosene lanterns that they lit and put on the front. Yeah.
1: No doubt. Yeah. So
2: you got it. You got an upgrade,
1: man.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Other than that, you made a custom rack for your luggage and stuff, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So with these long distance trips, the biggest headache really isn't, it's less mechanical than it is just trying to manage gear and figuring out a good system for keeping track of things uh, and having access to the things that you use frequently. So I spent quite a bit of time. I mean, I I probably spent as much time preparing my gear as I did the bike um, and the, the restoration. But so what I did, I created a kind of a rack system that, comes apart. So there's a, a rack that fits above the rear fender, and it telescopes down into some mounts that hold some oversized saddlebags. So I can pull a couple pins and lift that rack out, and then uh, I've got easier access to the bags and things under there. But I've got a lot of stuff I've got to carry. So I carry uh, spare fuel, quite a few, you know, tools, spare parts, and that's kind of a little bit of a science. And it's something that certainly you learn over time, what you need and what you don't need. Uh, The first trip out, I took way too much. So I was routinely stopping at a post office and boxing stuff up and shipping it back to the house, (laughs) stuff I didn't need. Um, So I lightened my load quite a bit. And then the second trip out, I kind of had it down. uh, I've got a pretty good setup now. Yeah,
0: lessons learned.
1: Yeah, no doubt. One thing that's really helped a lot, um, I camp a lot. And that, you know, all the, uh, you know, my tent, my sleeping bag, all that stuff, the sleeping pad, which I think is probably the most important part of all of it. Um, the technology and the, you know, the, the materials and design of all that stuff has changed a lot in recent years. So that's much more compact and easier to manage than it was even the first trip out. So yeah, I'm super comfortable now and have everything in a pretty, you know, minimized, Amount of space.
2: Shit, you talk about that. Think about if you were to try to do this years ago, where all you had was cotton, everything, and canvas tents.
1: Oh yeah. And try folding yeah, yeah, up a yeah.
2: canvas tent after yeah. a forty degree night. I mean, yeah. <laughs> suck it. <laughs> I mean, right. so that that's pretty dope. That's pretty cool as far as that goes.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize, you know, we're talking about a trip to Alaska, but your first trip, it wasn't just Alaska, was it?
1: Yeah, that's what I started to uh, talk about earlier. Getting to Alaska is not that big of a deal, but when I was first kind of scoping out roads and laying out a a plan for getting up there, that's when I discovered that you could actually, there was a road, the Hall road that runs from Fairbanks all the way north to Prudhoe Bay. You can actually ride all the way to the Arctic Ocean. I didn't realize that at the time, but... Uh, so I started investigating that a little more closely and decided uh, I was going to give that a try. So there are only two roads in all of North America that run through the Arctic to the Arctic Ocean. There's the the Hall Road in Alaska, and then there's a sister road called the Dempster that's in the Yukon Territory. It actually starts in the Northwest Territories, but runs up through an uh, Inuit village called Inuvik in the Northwest Territories. That road has since been extended and it runs on out to another village called Tuk Toyuk So it's set right on say. the ocean. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but both of the, those are the only two roads. If you look at a map of North America, you'll see the Arctic Circle. And then that road continues for about another 300 miles all the way up to the ocean. So the first trip up was in 2006. And that's when I quit work and hit the road and stayed gone so long. But uh, that road is short of 500 miles. It's mostly all gravel, and it runs through some of the roughest, most remote road you know areas in all of North America. It's used by the oil industry more than anything. It's, it's for truckers. that are servicing the pipeline and the oil fields way up north. Uh, there's some people that travel up there, but there's just not a lot of traffic, as you might imagine. Well, shoot, what's the point of going businesses. up
2: there unless you're an oiler?
1: Yeah, It's just an adventure. It's a, it's a destination and it's gorgeous. I mean, it's really unlike any other place you'll find it's, (laughs) it's quite an experience, but yeah, there's just nobody up there. Nobody goes up there.
2: Hats off to you, man. That's a, that's a freaking once in a lifetime deal. Nobody gets to do shit like that. Very amazing. So you're, you're going on a knucklehead up to Alaska. Where was the aha moment? Like was you gotta, I would have to assume that there's a point where, you know you're just you're cruising around there's nobody around and you're just like shit man this is this is life like that aspect of it really interests me it, it's just like was there a moment or a time where you're just like this was all worth it i would assume that there's a point in time while you're traveling where you're just like you know take this job and shove it was the best thing i could possibly do like this right here is living and then you talk about remote alaska is there any points where you're just like You got that gun on your side. You were like, all right, I'm going to need this for a second. You pull it out because wildlife game. You always talk about how dangerous the wildlife could possibly be up there. Your remote vintage motorcycle. You know, is there any of those moments throughout that trip that you're just like, oh, shit, I need to be prepared here?
1: Yeah. Yeah, there were a few of those. In terms of the aha moments, you know, I never really second guessed my decision to quit work. Uh I was at a spot where, you know, I didn't have a lot of responsibility. I didn't have a wife and children and a mortgage and those things that typically, you know, keep a person from doing something like this. So, there was just a general unhappiness with the work that I was doing. I did have an aha moment when I knew that it was time to leave that job, you know, while I was there. That's a long story, but <laughs> I uh <laughs>
2: everybody's got those. (laughs) It's just usually the paycheck that keeps them there in those situations.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's unfortunate, but we were, I was on an acquisition team. We were buying up another satellite company or looking at a satellite company that was for sale. It was owned by a foreign company. It was headquartered in New York city and they had flown me and two accountants in to look at this company and we're next to the Chrysler building and had a gorgeous view and they'd really laid out the red carpet for us. And it was really a cool deal. If you enjoy that kind of work, you know, I was 35 at the time and working a deal like that. And a lot of people, you know, if that's what you want to do, you know, you'd been in heaven. But, uh, one of my buddies was one of the accountants and I got up and was staring out the window for a bit, just watching downtown Manhattan and all the commotion. And I looked at my buddy and he's just knee deep in figures and calculating and just going to town. And he looked up and, I just started laughing. I said, you really enjoy this, don't you? And he's like, yeah, I love it. He's like, you enjoy it too, don't you? And I'm like, no, I hate this. (laughs) And it it was just at that point where I was just like, this has got to change. I'm done. So I went back and that's kind of the trigger point for, uh, the choice to leave work. But then once I quit, so the guy I reported to, uh, Dish Network was headquartered in Colorado and Denver. So I rode out there and, uh, went to the headquarters and that's where I quit. I parked out in front, went upstairs, dressed in a, you know, street clothes and a ball cap and went into my boss's office. And he goes, what are you doing here? And I said, and I had told him that I was going to do this, but he just, he didn't believe me. And like most people, you know, everybody's got a plan of doing something like that.
2: Shit. When you're a suit and tie guy, it's hard to see anybody wanting to leave that suit and tie for leathers and jeans yeah, and a ball yeah. but that
1: Never, I, like I said, growing up on a farm and wrenching. And I mean, I was truly kind of out of place in that profession and I still do it. I mean, I still practice law some, but not, it's not a full-time gig for me and I don't, it's just not my thing, but it's um, supplemental at this point. Yeah. And, uh, so I quit and, uh, he really encouraged me not to quit, but just to take a leave of absence and to come back, you know, he's like, just take as much time as you want and then come back. And, you know, I want you to move to Denver. We're going to work one-on-one and get some stuff done. He said, why wouldn't you do that? And I said, "Because, because I'm miserable. And I mean, the truth is he wasn't the happiest guy I knew either. And he was enormously successful but just on a personal level, just wasn't a very happy fella. So anyway, I just
2: didn't- Success doesn't always breed happiness.
1: No, no, no. And that's not what I wanted for myself. So I I knew for sure that I was ready to bail. So I did, and then I left out of there and headed towards, uh, you know, just went north up through Wyoming. And that's kind of when it started to settle in and I started to laugh to myself that I was actually doing this. And, uh, but never really second guessed that part of the choice. But again, it's very different when you know, you're kind of short on responsibilities. It's not yeah, you know.
0: Hey, look at me. I am the complete opposite of successful, but I'm very happy. Yeah.
1: Sure. <laughs> you're just happy
2: because you woke up today. <laughs> you old ass brick. Uh I tell you what, you know, I would have to imagine on a ride like that to Alaska, like, you know, I'm a I'm a very busy person. Craig knows that. Yeah. So those those moments, like my best moments, you know, ride my motorcycle at one o'clock in the morning. When there's not a soul around for miles, the moon's out, it's nice, good air. Like, those are the moments that give me chills, just like this is what it's all about. Like, this is what I thoroughly enjoy. I love it. I would have to imagine riding to Alaska on an old nuck. That whole trip would almost have to be filled with that. Just holy shit, like this is living. I've got nothing to do, no responsibilities for shit. I'm on this motorcycle that I, I've went through this entire year. Like to me, like the trip, the destination, the notch in the belt, all that aside, like that to me would be the one that's just like, how can I do more of this? Because yeah. I, I mean, I'm so envious of that, like to be lost in your own time with your machine that you've put all the work into, like Frick, that's why most people ride motorcycles is for that situation right there.
1: Yeah. Well, there was definitely, uh, that component to it. And to follow up on that same line of thought with your earlier question about aha moments. So in Wyoming, you know, it was wide open and, you know, I'm out there, you know, just the few days after I had quit work and, you know, was heading up, but the bike was running great and I really didn't have any hesitation about anything, but what happens, this is probably true of people who backpack or sailboats or whatever, within a few days, like a pattern starts to develop in your, just your day-to-day routine. And once that pattern developed, I really started getting comfortable with all of it. And the further North I got, there's a point at which you kind of transition over into that frontier-like part where it's just, it's something changes up there. It's, you know, and it's in Canada, I'd say about midway through British Columbia. And you start getting into, you know, just that different culture. And it really, I just really started to settle in. And by the time I got to Alaska, you know, I was really.
2: Well, shit, you got to be thinking at this point, I'm the dude, you know, like I'm the man, everything's on me and I'm great with that.
1: Yeah. And that was, yeah, exactly right. I had everything I wanted or needed shoved into a duffel bag Mm -hmm. and I just absolutely could not have been any happier. And then day after day after day went on where I felt that way. And then I got up. Well, uh, there's a million stories about things that happened along the way, but you know, Craig and I had talked previously about when you do a trip like that I, and that you could have that experience on any motorcycle, I think, or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever your thing is, if you like driving, you know, land rovers or whatever, you, you could have a similar experience, but that antique motorcycle, that knucklehead things happen because I'm riding that bike that would not happen on a modern motorcycle it opens doors to people and events that wouldn't be opened on any other type of bike. And part of that's because of the novelty of seeing an antique bike way up there, you know, and it's really, you know, riding the bike's fun. It's fun camping. And, you know, if you enjoy those things, which I do, you know, it's just right up my alley. I love that part of it, but really the best part of doing all this is the folks you meet, you know, just the, the things that come out of left field that you didn't expect and just those coincidences, I mean, and those happen daily. I mean, it's like before noon every day, something noteworthy happened. And so when you combine all those things together, it's like, geez, what's better than this? There isn't... <laughs> Hell yeah, and man. I got so used to it. Um, I made it to Prudhoe Bay. I was stranded in Prudhoe Bay for 10 days. The road, the weather I came through was pretty rough. And it ended up, they closed the road for a little bit. So I was stuck up there, but. While I was there, I just, you know, kind of took inventory of where I was and what I was going to do. And I was like, well, this is the northernmost point I can reach by road in all of North America. The westernmost point is Anchor Point, Alaska, down on the Kenai Peninsula, down by Homer. And so I thought, well, I'm going to ride down there, certainly, while I'm here. And then I thought, you know, I had some money saved and I had, everything was going smoothly. So I thought, I'm I'm not going to quit. I'd originally planned just to ride to Prudhoe and back home, but... That's when the idea started to set in that maybe I would extend this trip and stay out a while. So I ended up you know starting to eyeball Key West, Florida as a southern destination. and then Lebec, Maine is the easternmost point that you can reach by road. And it looked like I could fit all that in before it got too cold. so that's that's what I did. The first trip out, I stayed out about five months. I went twenty one thousand two hundred and twenty two miles. And uh, hit all four of those points. And finally, I started running out of warm weather and money, so I headed back to the house. <laughs> Time yeah. to recoup. As, as you do, yeah. 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 So this is what cracks me up. And you can correct me if I'm
2: wrong, and Craig could edit this out if I'm just a retard on this situation. But Oh, well, I do a
0: lot of editing when you
2: talk. <laughs> you look at the westernmost point, right? So to look at it on a flat map, it doesn't look like it's the most western point. But it is. like By far you know is it is it not like i would assume the right where that stretch is it is it the, it's the bering sea correct that would connect alaska in the winter time when it's frozen over to yeah. russia like correct. that that to me looks like on a flat map the most western point but what you're talking about is more on the
1: southwestern side of alaska right yeah but the the deal is you can't get out there you can't reach ah, that by road
2: there, i see what you're saying yeah
1: there are no roads out there the western Alaska is inaccessible, unless you've got a boat or an airplane. There, that road, if you look at uh, the Hall Road, which runs, again, from Prudhoe Bay south to Fairbanks, and then on down south of Anchorage, you go down onto the Kenai Peninsula. That's you, There aren't any roads that go further west than that. So, yeah... Which is part of what's cool about Alaska It's just so remote and undeveloped.
2: Oh so, man, that's it. Like I said, like you look at that on a flat map and you're like, well, shit, you can get further west than that. But unless yeah. you've been there and experienced it, you're you're sitting there to a lamer to a, to a me, you're like bullshit. You know, <laughs> like to see you try. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah this this nuck ain't
2: going through there.
1: Yeah. The other thing that people don't realize is there are a lot of folks in Alaska that spend their winters in Hawaii. And that's because if you look at the map again, the Hawaiian islands sit just south of uh, Anchor Point, Alaska. That's how far that landmass is. I had a couple of friends
0: that would work in Alaska in the summer in the oil camps. Yeah. And then the rest of the year, they were in Hawaii.
2: Damn, talk about a super big culture shock. Think about that, you know, how, you know, relatively close Hawaii is. You go from the frozen tundra to the freaking sweet palm beaches of Hawaii, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty
1: dope. It's a stretch between the two, but it is. Oh, just yeah. the south.
0: So tell us a little bit about you, any uh, experiences you had with the local wildlife. Yeah. And I don't mean the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> that's another podcast.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes, so the, please. Uh, so among the things I pack, you can't really pack a pistol into Canada. So that's creates a little bit of difficulty if you want to carry a firearm, which I did. So what I took, I've got a little uh, 12-gauge shotgun that I carry. There's a, a ballistic slug that's used that's really effective on bear. So that's what I carry, and it's perfectly legal to carry it through Canada. You pay, at the time, it was a $25 permit to carry it through. Um, and by the way, the trick to getting, you cannot, as you're traveling through Canada, at least when I was going, you couldn't claim that you were using it for defense personal defense against humans, but you could use it for personal defense against wildlife. You had to jump through a hoop and say the right thing. Right. Carry it in. But anyway, uh,
2: that's a real thought. I have to have this weapon to protect against wildlife.
1: Yeah. I had, uh, oh, one funny run in, which really didn't uh, mount anything was when I left Fairbanks and headed North, I had planned to camp at the Arctic circle. They've got a few concrete pads there and an outdoor restroom, and, you know, it's, it's not really a developed campground, but there is a spot you can camp for the night. So I was planning to put down there, so I arrived, started unloading gear, I set my tent up, got everything ready, and then went down to use that restroom. And when I got down there, there was a big note on the door from the Alaska Fish and Game that says, do not camp here a rabid wolf that's loose and it's been biting people in this area. So. <laughs> biting and not just
2: tearing their ass apart. Yeah. <laughs> he just says, eh, just a little taste.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it was about 11 o'clock and way up north in the summertime, you know, it doesn't get very dark at all. So it was still light enough, but, uh, rain was setting in and it started to rain. I'm like, well, rats, what am I going to do here? so I ended up deciding to go ahead and pack up. I wasn't going to there wasn't anybody else around. So I thought I'm going to pack it out of here. So, but I'm still worried about this wolf, you know, so I I get my shotgun out and I've got it in one hand and I'm trying to pack up my gear, you know, looking over my shoulder with one eye peeled. yeah. Yeah. So I get all packed up by this time it's raining pretty good. So I'm like, shoot, I'm, I got a problem. So I, uh, just took off, headed north some more and uh, the rain picked up, started getting darker, and I just kept going and going, and going, and then eventually uh I just didn't have any choice. I just had to keep going. And it was in the middle of the night and the road up there, you know, at that point it's all completely gravel. And it had rained so much, there's a lot of chuck holes up there. And no. you see them coming, they're not a problem. <laughs> just dodge them, but at night with a six volt headlight in the rain, the those chuck holes had filled full of water that was the same color as the road, so I couldn't see. Oh. And <laughs> it, <laughs> it I love was, it. That's it was that's just, just a funny. Nightmare ride. And you're in the middle of nowhere. You know, there's nobody up there. I'm not seeing traffic and you you got anyway, it's just a weird experience. But I've kept going, kept going, kept going. Finally, at the halfway point up the hall road is a place called Coldfoot. And it was a work camp when the Alaska pipeline was being built and it continues. It serves as a truck stop and a restaurant and you can still rent a room there in that work camp. And they're just trailers that have been connected end to end, you know, it's rough, but it's a place to sleep. But anyway, I finally rolled in there to Coldfoot about five o'clock in the morning. And,
2: uh, yeah, it was. Sounds like a hell of an experience.
1: Yeah, it was. It's just crazy. So I got there and, I rolled in and went into the lodge area and uh, asked about getting a room. And it's like five o'clock in the morning. And this is 2006. So the room was uh, 150 bucks. I'm like, man, I wasn't doing that. Not not at that (laughs) time of day. So I'm like, well, how much is a hot shower? And she goes, 10 bucks. So I got a, they had a shower room that was separate. So I, I just got a hot shower and threw my clothes in the dryer and went into the restaurant. And there was a trucker in there whom I'd met in Fairbanks a few days before he knew about my trip and that I was heading up that way. So he got a big chuckle out of seeing me and was surprised <laughs> to see me, but he said, what's going on? And I told him I'd written all night and he said, well, I've got a brand new Peterbilt sitting out there in the lot. He said, I haven't even slept in it yet. He said, go climb up in that thing and get some rest. He said, I'm going to be here for a few hours anyway. So I went up and climbed in the back of his semi truck and got some rest and then uh, headed out again later that morning. But it was, uh, so that, First trip up the Hall road took me 36 hours and it's uh, a lot of it was just first gear, oh, first man. gear, and second gear. Cause the problem is they put calcium chloride down on that road up there. And what it does, when the road's dry, it's hard packed and you know, it's, it, it's a good road, but when it's wet, it becomes super slick. And I grew up riding on, you know, riding bikes on clay mud and things didn't think much about it, but once I experienced that, I was like, holy cow, this is different. So it was, <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. It's
2: like riding on ice. One of those rides, you just have both feet down all the time. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. Well, and then you got the wind blowing. Oh, yeah. Just, but anyway, that experience back there at the Arctic Circle in terms of wildlife and run-ins, that was one. And then I, the other one that I didn't even know about till later, I was heading south of Fairbanks. And uh, I pulled over for a second to strap some gear down, and a car went by me. And later, half hour or so later, I pulled into a restaurant and that same car was already at the restaurant. And I went inside and there was a couple, a man and a lady who were in there eating. And uh, they saw me come in and started laughing. And I started laughing. I said, what's so funny? They said, well, you know, when you stopped to adjust your gear back there, they said, you don't know it because you weren't paying attention. but..." A big old grizzly bear walked out of the woods and crossed the road right behind you. And you didn't see it because your back was turned. Holy shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's one yeah. of those where you're just like, whew, thank goodness for somebody yeah. out there.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, those were the only two really run-ins I had with wildlife that I've ever had, really.
2: You know, you talk about taking a trip like this and most people, this is going to seem very pessimistic, but most people today couldn't do something like that. You know, I really like, I'm a desolate person. I think Craig somewhat is too. You know, the idea of being by yourself with no one to talk to or anything like that absolutely just ruins people on a trip like that. You know, you're, you went solo, correct?
1: Yeah, I did. Well, the first trip out, I went solo and, you know, truthfully, I had a couple great aunts who were keeping track of me and where I was, and they were really worried that I was lonely out there. Well, <laughs> you know, I'm telling you, it's just, it's not like that at all. The idea that you're just, uh, you know, on your own, it's just not like that. There's always people to talk to. So yeah, the first trip I took, I put all my stuff into storage and that was in 2006. I've still got stuff sitting in storage. Um, it really shifted my idea about how I want to spend the rest of my life. And it's, uh, yeah, I grew up working hard. My folks worked extremely hard and, uh, because they had to, you know, they raised, my dad was raising four kids. He worked in the tooling department at McDonnell aircraft, building fighter jets in St. Louis. And they, you know, I've always respected that work ethic. All my family's, you know, been scrabble farmers and, you know, that was instilled in me as well, but I don't want to commit myself to that if I don't have to all the time. So, yeah, that trip, I just enjoyed it so much. Well, it sounds
0: like the trip not only was a big adventure, it was a key turning point in the path of your life. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it wasn't something I really planned. It just kind of happened. And I haven't uh, planned to avoid responsibility either, but it just kind (laughs) of happened. But so I took that first trip, and, uh, you know, my buddies all kept up with me and where I was going and things. And I've got a good friend of mine that I went to high school with who – Like me, we were, he was just kind of a motorhead. He raced cars and rode motorcycles and he had kind of an interesting history. He went to college, got a degree in biology. And when he was teaching at a local high school in a rural part of Southern Missouri, and uh, he and his wife uh, had a baby, but it had a lot of problems and didn't make it. And it really flipped a switch in him. And he decided he was going to medical school. We all thought that was crazy, but he dedicated himself to it. And his goal was to move back home and deliver babies. And that's what he did. So the guy works his way into medical school, uh, came back here and did just that. Well, about 10 years went by and he called me. Meanwhile, I'm roaming around on this bike and doing things a little differently. He called me and said, hey, I've been delivering babies for 10 years straight and I'm about to lose my mind. He said, I really, I want to take a break. He said, I'd like to build a bike and ride to the Arctic Ocean like you did. He said, would you want to go back to Prudhoe Bay? And I said, well, you bet I'd do. I said, I'll, I'll do that in a heartbeat. But I said, let's do this. Instead of going to Prudhoe Bay, I'd really like to ride that same sister road that's in Canada that runs up to Inuvik. So he spent about two years planning and structuring. Well, he restored a—his uh, name's Scott Roush, by the way. He's a doctor in West Plains. But he rode a uh, 1965 BMW R60 slash 2. Well, that's a 600cc bike with skinny tires. and <laughs> It's a
2: different animal.
1: Yeah. My bike's a 1,000cc with big fat tires, so it does pretty good on the gravel, but...
2: He's riding a pogo stick up there. <laughs>
1: yeah. He had six weeks he had blocked where he could take off, so we left out in... That second trip up was in 2013, and they have since extended that road in Canada on out to that other uh, village that I mentioned, and so... We're planning to go back up this coming summer of 23. That would be awesome. What I want to do, we're still kind of ironing things out, but I want to ride up to tuk and then go over into Alaska and also run the one back up to Prudhoe Bay. Um, I failed to mention earlier, the trip to Prudhoe Bay, when I got stranded there, I was taken in by some guys that run a company called Alaska Air Taxi, and they fly people and cargo all over the North Slope. And they put me up. They've got sleeping quarters there at the airport. And I stayed with them for 10 days. And they let me fly with them. I helped them load airplanes. And they let me fly. So I got to fly to all the oil field installations and Eskimo villages and out over the Arctic Ocean. And just really had a whale of the time. Did not want to leave. Uh, On the 10th day, they said, listen, if you don't get out of here and it snows, you're going to spend the winter here. So we're going to get you out of here. They were flying their cargo plane back to Anchorage. Empty. So we took my knucklehead and rolled it up the back end of that thing. And he flew me out of there. I flew an airplane back to Fairbanks. Then he he just dropped me off at the airport. And I said, here you go. Yeah. Best of luck to you. (laughs) Yeah. Get out of my plane. Yeah. 10 days of this,
2: you're done.
0: Well, it sounds like you had a, a terrific adventure, more than one and we'd like to have you back and talk about your second trip and some of the other things that you're doing, like building vintage motorcycles. That fascinates me to no end right there.
2: Why? Why? Pol- yeah, Polaris didn't make any vintage motorcycles. <laughs> I, I hear the chuckle on his side, too. He gets it. <laughs> what you don't see is
0: the stink eye I'm giving Randy. Oh, shit. So yeah, man. Yeah, Is there anything I'm better? I'm a renaissance than- man. I, I can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Bullshit. I've occasion. seen you try. You ended up in a walker. <laughs> what well, that's been done, too.
2: <laughs> I just like the idea of riding motorcycles and busting people's balls. That's, sure. That's it.
0: Well, you know, you got to have a hobby. Yeah. And yours, uh, Aaron, happens to be uh, vintage bikes. And I'd like to talk to you about that some more on another podcast. So I appreciate you uh, coming on and telling us about your adventure. And we will catch up with you in the very near future and talk about uh, some more of the stuff that you've been up to with these old timey bikes.
1: Cool. Thanks, guys.
0: So go to OzarkRides.com, go to the podcast page, and you'll find a video there of uh, Aaron and Dale Waxler together uh, talking about some of his adventures. Now, the video was made after his first trip to Alaska, but as I understand it, before the second trip. So if you've enjoyed our little podcast, and perhaps you'd like to help support the podcast and Ozark Rides website, then you might consider becoming a club member. And you can do that simply by going to patreon.com forward slash or you can find a link at ozarkrides.com also just a reminder you can also find the random thoughts from the road podcast not only at ozark rides but on any of your favorite podcast platforms things like spotify itunes google you know the list so those are all the options out there for you if you're inclined and until next week uh, stay on two wheels and always ride safe